their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you would ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maud. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. Hi, uh, this is Xenia. You're listening to Bonnie and Maud. <laughs> What's our thing again? Hey, this is Bonnie and Maud. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. We are a film-centric film podcast coming to you from the studio apartment in Brooklyn. And today's episode is MomCast Part 2. <laughs> uh, last year on the show, we had my mother, uh, Paula, on the show to discuss Rosemary's Baby. And I am so thrilled to have Ksenia's mom, Tatiana, on the show today. So welcome. Thank you, girls. Um, and I don't know what to say at this point. Um, <laughs> my mom, Tatiana, she is a hypnotist. You, you have an architecture degree. You used to be an amazing seamstress. You have many talents and many interests. Um, and one of them is film. I, I feel like I partially discovered uh, movies through your tastes in my youth um, and unintentionally or intentionally you introduced me to the filmmaker Guy Madden. How, how did you end up finding Saddest Music in the World, which was the first Guy Madden movie we watched together? Was it during that time when we were browsing through the tapes in uh, Blockbuster? It's possible. It Blockbuster? Mm-hmm. We had no idea what to we find, just but it. it was just we were browsing through the tapes, and sometimes, sometimes the cover looks yeah interesting, yeah, and the description of the movie. So I was looking for something weird enough to grab my interest. So mm-hmm. I think it was one of those, and then we got on Netflix and watched Careful mm-hmm. after that. Well, I think Careful was something that I recommended to you later. Yes. Um, Careful was something that I saw once I came to New York. Um, Our friend Christina introduced us to this film. Um, She had a whole series. And so for this particular podcast, we watched uh, the Guy Madden movie Careful and Brand Upon the Brain. Um, I just wanted sort of like two different ones to to get a full grasp of his style uh, in color and black and white. I was unfamiliar with Guy Madden, um, so I feel like I am playing the role of <laughs> the noob to this conversation, um, And but also perhaps helpful for our listeners, helpful for you guys, is explaining who he is and sort of where his work exists in the larger, I guess, world of maybe experimental filmmaking or avant-garde filmmaking, if you do want to use those words to describe him. Mm. He's pretty much Canadian filmmaker number one. Yeah, I knew that he was prominent, but after reading his Wikipedia page, I discovered quite how important he is um, for that country. Canada considers him a national treasure which um, I thought was great. And in an interview that we read, um, which we'll post a link to, he, the, the interviewer asked him, so how does it feel to be a national treasure? And Guy Madden was like, yes, I want everybody to know that I am indeed a national treasure of Canada. <laughs> he has a really good sense of humor, and he's one of those people that, um, if you listen to his um, 
film commentaries. It has a really nice mix of melancholy and romance and him. Which is kind of the perfect way to describe his films. I mean, they clearly have a lot of references to other types of filmmaking. He's a big lover of silent film and tries to recreate a lot of the feelings of those in his movies. Um, clearly, especially with Careful, he's very influenced by David Lynch's Eraserhead and similar type of kind of experimental filmmaking. Um, but there's Even a lot going of- back as far as Dolly mm-hmm. and uh, maybe Benwell, I think. Mm-hmm. I basically, if you've never seen a Guy Madden movie, the best way to describe it is the best and oddest dream that you've ever had. Like, there are so many filmmakers that try to do dream sequences, but I have never encountered another movie, another filmmaker who, like, gets at the feeling of it so perfectly, where it's like, things make sense, even though when you, like, write them out, they're really odd. Like, within this world, everything is logical. And visually, his films are basically the anti-Blu-ray, which I love. (laughs) I, like, it reminded me how much I love messiness and, like, odd colors because everything is constantly shifting. They're often, well, he loves working with black and white, but in Careful, um, most of the film um, scenes are in two colors. So it would be, like, orange and blue, and it looks like... um, film stock that had gone slightly bad. Mm-hmm. Um, that and the fact that the aspect ratio is close to square or almost square, this movie looked like Instagram. <laughs> it did. I don't know that I want to downgrade it to right. maybe that's sort of a that's Maybe that's sort of a bash, but I don't mean it like that. I mean that the colors were so deliberate, even in their haziness, and the film would jump around from like, I liked when he did single color palettes. So there mm-hmm. was all red or all, all lime green or all blue. And I actually am hoping to go back and watch this for a second time at some point and kind of analyze what colors are being used in what parts of the movie, like in the, you know, in the final battle, which we'll definitely get into the plot about this a little bit more in a moment. It's all blue and white mm-hmm. and it has this sort of like stark quality to it. He he talks about it a little bit on the commentary track where he like tried to go through them uh, in a certain, to like mix it up enough. I don't know that they necessarily have quite that much meaning, but I think he wanted to often have two colors at a time and like have them vary. What's I think really interesting about these films is both feature very prominent mother figures. And I remember even being a little kid and you pointing out that it made you upset how often mothers were evil in movies. <laughs> so Yeah, I can see the little different perspective you, at this point. Let's contextualize it a little bit. And Brand Upon the Brain, uh, the mother is in charge of this um, orphanage. orphanage. And the interesting detail about her is um, her two children, who are actually hers, not not the orphans, have these special um, aerophones. These like little um, briefcases that they, or like messenger bags that they carry around that have a special phone. And she can always 
talk with them through this like long tube. You can only communicate on the aerophone when it is the communication of love. The voice of <laughs> Isabella Rossellini, who narrates this movie, tells us. And she also watches them from the White House. Um, Which was very Eye of Sauron, by the way. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> like, you know, the Eye of Sauron at the top of the mountain, sort of like turning and seeing uh -huh. the, uh, the badness that is going against her rule. That's, uh -huh. anyway. <laughs> Try to latch on to things that... Uh... Um, so she's always keeping an eye on her children and wants mm -hmm. to make sure they're well, but also in both cases there's a lot of repression that's sort of forced upon the children, like... In Careful, it's very, it's quite literal, and I actually liked this narrative device a lot. In Careful, this town of Tolsbad, which is located at the base of a mountain that is very prone to avalanches, and so the town has to take great care in order to not make any loud noises that could set off an avalanche and destroy them all. Um, interestingly, and I loved this detail, the last time there was a big avalanche, it uncovered all the dead who had been buried in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And because of the snow and the ice, they had been preserved. And there's this incredible line about old children looked at the faces of their young parents and it freaked everyone out. And I think there's kind of this supernatural element where they feared zombieism. So the town starts piercing the hearts of anyone who dies so they can't, I don't know, get preserved and come back to life. That's sort of a side note. Um, so everyone in this town talks in a whisper. All the animals have had their vocal cords slit and no one can make any loud noises. And that leads to a lot of repression. And it also leads to the fact that when lovers talk to each other, when anyone talks to each other, their voices carry. So it's hard to keep secrets, and there's a lot of secrets in this town, and a lot of it has to do with incest, and, and murder, and suicide, and misplaced affection. <laughs> so that's the world into which we enter in Careful. And in Brand Upon the Brain, there's also this kind of body horror element where the mother has been sucking nectar out of her orphan children's brains because in order children to... children are full of nectar. <laughs> um, in order to preserve her youth in like a weird... It reminded me of Tangled. <laughs> You're drawing some weird connections I today. can't help it. It's, it's all the varied things we've watched for this mm -hmm. show. But anyway, so the, yeah, the, orphan, the orphanage leader tries to preserve her youth by preying on the children. Yeah. Anyway... Do you feel that children keep you young? <laughs> that's what mothers do. Do you drink <laughs> the nectar? That's the only way to keep children. young, you know? Let's start with careful. What did you think of the mother in careful and her it portrayal? Was, it's actually interesting to compare two mothers in careful okay. and yeah. the brand upon the brain. Since all his movies, as you said, it's like a dream. To me, it's like a dream when you wake up in the morning, you're not awake fully. You just remember there was something significant, something you really want it's to like grasp. It's like on the tip of your tongue and, and you want to describe it, but it's like slipping back. away. Yes, and, and it's mostly like emotional sensations. Mm -hmm. We can say that mother in Brand Upon the Brain is, she's controlling, she's almost evil. But at the same time, absolutely every child can remember 
his or her mother as very controlling, (laughs) very evil at some point because she wants her child to do specific things. The child doesn't even Mm -hmm. have any idea why do I have to. And then it's a sort of archetype. So it's almost inevitable that just being a mother puts you into the role of someone who is evil, almost witch-like, and because you have to scold this child in order to guide them? Well, you know, (laughs) you don't have to. You don't have to. Maybe the mother in Careful looks like purely loving. Mm -hmm. And she's like an angel. She is just uh, totally uh, at peace and love while she's getting upset at certain situations, mm-hmm. of course, with her child. But you have to remember that in Careful, there is a son in the attic that she is completely ignoring oh, yes. and will not acknowledge. And she's feeling bad about it. So until, it's like, yes. in the main room, she's the perfect mother. But if you like look at the child in the attic she's the worst. So it also depends on who you are in the relationship to your mother, whether she's an angel or a witch. She came back to that child and asked for forgiveness. And the way she asked for forgiveness, it was also like immediate relief in her. And she became even more loving at that moment. Mm -hmm. So it seems like, and everyone can remember mother that way. And everyone can remember mother being controlled. It depends, again, what part of the dream you try to recall. Mm-hmm. As you said, when you haven't seen anything by Guy Madden, you would be surprised how weird those movies are. At first, you probably would have the experience of like jaw-dropping, frozen, <laughs> like, like, I can't stop watching this horror. I don't horror. think they're that much weirder than, let's say, Wes Anderson. Um, there are a lot of things that could almost be considered a little precious, but at the same time, there's just like so much emotion there. And I find it so satisfying. Whereas Wes Anderson has a lot of odd elements, but they're so like cleanly put together that it feels cold to me. Hmm. Um, I feel so much like euphoria and sadness and, I feel overwhelmed with like every possible emotion when I watch Guy Madden and it's, yeah, I I find his films really satisfying. Yeah. And emotion is the key. Actually, did you notice how the brand upon the brain is black and white and only at the peak of emotional desires to find a girl that he was dreaming about to find her again. It was just a glimpse of color. Huh. Only a few glimpses of color when the emotion is so deep huh. and he's like so desperate. And the, like, yes, and it's just like flesh huh. and black and white again. Uh-huh. And that, yeah, all his movies is pure emotion. And that's why it's so beautiful. And so you can relate to anything. It doesn't matter what kind of life, what kind of mother you have, you can just mm-hmm. feel it. Hmm. Um, Another interesting um, aspect of his films is they all have some biographical elements to them. I I mean, his very first film was about a ghost father, ghost dad, if you will. (laughs) Um, And this is a character who has recurred in other films as well, including Careful. And it has to do with the fact that his father died when he was um, 
a teenager, maybe even younger, and his older brother committed suicide um, some years later. Yeah. His father actually uh, was blind. His father was embraced by his mother when he was a baby, and his eye was pierced by an open brooch. Oh, which is what happens in Careful. Yeah. So he incorporates details like that into his stories. Um, And there, yeah, there's a lot about eyes and limbs throughout his films. Even the father in Brand Upon the Brain is kind of ghost-like because he is in the basement laboratory inventing and we don't really see him very much and then he dies and they like revive him and he's a zombie yeah yeah zombieism is working yeah he's always working and They're... that's symbolic also about fathers <laughs> hmm. yeah. they, they they are still there even when they're not well it's uh, lots of symbolism in both of the movies so again back to mothers this is very symbolic view of how we see our mothers so they are controlling they are seeing everything they always hear even when you whisper (laughs) they know where you are it's a mother's secret like at the end of careful i think also she says it several times, I yes. think. Yes. How uh, did you find me, mother? A mother's and secret. She, she always mother's knows. Secret. And that's, I, actually, that's how I perceived my mother. I always knew mm-hmm. everything. I always knew that she knows what I think, what I feel, where I am. I feel like it sort of goes back to, like, the anecdote of, like, you can generally tell a little child is lying and the mom can tell and she's like... I know where you've been, like, I know you're lying. And that, like, I think the impression that the child gets is, like, they're overseeing and yeah. they, like, know more than they really do. I've always felt that. Yeah. <laughs> I've always all... felt like my mother knows exactly. more than, more than I think she does, more than she lets on, and I never know how she figures it out. <laughs> she just knows. She's all-seeing. It's also the thing, and I don't know, Tatiana, when you were describing the omnipresence of everyone's experience with their mother, it took me back to this very specific place when I would be a little kid in the grocery store with my mom. And, you know, she would send me off to get something and we could sense where the other person was and be able to, like, call us instantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's a strange, like... I don't know. It was a strange feeling. Well, I think after a while, as we grow older, it almost like gets mixed up. Like there's the real mother who I'm looking at right now, but then there's also like almost a mother figure in your own mind that gets created sort of like mixed with memories of who your parent was, but also like you like learn to parent yourself and you're watching over yourself. And so it like gets muddled. Yes, you're right, because um, her mother, your mother's voice goes with you. Yeah. It's literally, and I actually experienced it, and it's not crazy. <laughs> it's, it was in my mind. We don't I know. When, when I lived in Kiev oh, with the little child, Ksenia, periodically I would just go through the streets doing, you know, thinking my own business, and I hear my mother's voice saying, Tanichka, like that's how she called me. And it was clearly in my mind, but it was almost literally, I heard her voice. 
and I knew that she wasn't around. I knew that I wasn't crazy hallucinating. It just was there with me, and I knew she was thinking of me 10,000 miles away. Mm. You know, it was kind of, it's an interesting connection. So, it, I mean, it's this feeling that even if your mother isn't physically in the same place as you, her influence is always there with you. And the wisdom that she's imparted to you stays, the guilt that she's instilled in you has stayed. I mean, exactly. You hear her voice because she's, you know, so influenced the way that you've become a person. For better or for worse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for, I think for us, for better, for the characters in Guy Madden's movies, possibly for worse. Turn off the dog. Yeah, turn off the dog. Turn off the dog. It's usually not quite so yappy. I was always perplexed by, like, I never had a son. I never wanted to have a son for whatever reason. I'm not masculine enough for I you. always wanted to have a <laughs> daughter, and I'm so happy that that's exactly what I was asking for. I was always, and I am perplexed, by mother's relationship with their sons. And I have this idea, and I see it in the movies always. You notice how in The Brand Upon the Brain, mother has different relationship with her daughter. It's extremely controlling, uh, kind of mean, uh, and always try to make sure that her daughter is like buttoned up and all proper. Mm -hmm. um, Versus her relationship with her son. And with her son, she's very permissive. She's loving, she's caring, she's brushing his teeth and hugging him. It's almost like, I have this feeling that it's a natural mother-daughter friction in all the movies, as you see on all the stories and all relationships, where mothers grow old and have this certain jealousy, but at the same time, they want their daughters to be better and be prepared, and so they want them to be very, very careful. That's why they need to button their shirts and everything, <laughs> all that. But with son, they also want to grow this man that she had always been dreaming about. So, because every woman, most women, I would say, unsatisfied with that they dream about some Prince Charming, would call, right? And when they meet that prince, it's not quite as charming as she was <laughs> expecting. <laughs> and so now and she so has they the try son, to raise one. they can bring it up, all the possibility of the best qualities she, that she was looking for. And, of course, their sons look like this is exactly the man that should be the best for. And, of course, there is no good woman in the world who deserves this guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nobody's good. And that's what I see from mothers who have sons. They always like, you know, he's mine. <laughs> I would just dance and <laughs> with uh -huh. him and brush his teeth and everything. You know, so it's interesting to see how he presented in the movie as well. Mm -hmm. Like typical relationship, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that comes out a lot in Careful, too, because the mother, you know, it, it, it comes out that the boy's father, the, the blind father who, who's passed away but kind of comes back in ghost form, she didn't really love him. Um, she had had this prior affair with the Count, who presides over the town, and who her two sons 
are going to school to be able to be butlers in his palace. Um, of course, there's the third son who is kept in the attic and shut away, and she really only focuses on the two sons, and they are her prized possessions. So it almost makes sense that one of the sons returns this misplaced affection in the form of a very, you know, strange sexual desire, which comes to him in a dream. He like has a sex dream about his mother. He wakes up, is horrified, but can't help but act on it. And then jumps off a mountain because he's so horrified at himself. At which point the other son sort of becomes the favorite mm-hmm. in a in not quite the same sort of relationshipy way, but becomes sort of, you know, everybody's chance in that family to have a better life. Mm-hmm. He winds up being a butler for the count. The count reveals the his love for her mother and tries to marry her and have them for move his in. Mother. What did I say? Her mother. Oh, his love for his mother and had, tries to get them to move into the palace. But then at the end of the movie, when Gringos, that's his name, um, the mm-hmm. son challenges the count to a duel and fights him it was kind of you know i couldn't help but see the oedipal aspect of that you know he's fighting the father figure for the love of the mother even if he didn't want to have a sexual relationship with his mother it was certainly well like leading up to the duel he actually calls um his mom uh like a hussy basically and he's like repulsed by her being attracted to someone other than his father Mm -hmm. and that's part of the reason he wants to kill the count um yeah it's weird like he has other sexual feelings that are misplaced towards her like they might not be quite the same as his brother who actually cuts her bodice open and like sucks on her nipple (laughs) before jumping off a mountain. Um, But there's still, yeah, there's something mixed up there. Mm -hmm. Don't gamble with life. Remember, that's the message of the movie, when that was teacher, very, very brief scene, right? Mm -hmm. Teacher was, don't gamble with life. And I think that's the message about all the relationship. Like, they don't explain why mother didn't, why did she marry their father in the first place? Uh, There's no explanation. But it was. I think her parents didn't approve or something. something. I mean, it all, like, everything goes back to Mm -hmm. parents. Parents of parents and parents of parents' parents. Yes. (laughs) Can I ask what the experience was for the two of you watching these films together as you, Tatiana, were introducing Ksenia to. I mean, we kind of discovered them together. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) My mom and I have always watched odd films together i feel like i've i've always been comfortable watching weird films. strange movies <laughs> probably with you. because i grew up with the okay i grew up with two channels on tv and i had been watching movies of the soviet era for a hundred times the same movie you know, over and over all traditional very very you know, heartwarming, I mean, so pleasant and nice. And um, I was just bored with all that traditional way of describing life and talk Mm -hmm. about life. I was always longing for something more than that. And then I discovered so much about just watching various 
foreign movies. As I said, browsing through that blockbuster. Yeah, I when, was looking I for was, some foreign movies for some never heard of movies. I remember so I, I was in eighth grade, and we actually went to that blockbuster almost every week. Yeah. So that yeah, I guess it's that like was looking for some treasures, and once in a while, one out of ten movies at least, or maybe even more. Yeah. We were finding some like wow, that's something. Um, I mean, one of the movies we rented at that blockbuster was uh, Slums of Beverly Hills. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and that was uh, an interesting experience. <laughs> Which Ksenia has explained on a previous episode. Um, anyway, yeah, I think we've, we've always been comfortable watching odd movies together. Um, and um, yeah, and you, you brought up David Lynch earlier, which I thought was interesting because um, as much as I don't like uh, surreal movies, I don't like horror all that much. I really like Guy Madden and I like David Lynch. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's specifically because um, there's something in their personal philosophy and like filmmaking philosophy that goes back to dreams. Absolutely. I trust them. Yeah. Like I trust them to take me into their dream world. And even if it's something really disturbing, like Inland Am Empire, I know that what they're showing me is something sincere and true and is like trying to get into a deeper part of our brain versus you know some other filmmakers who just like throw out a bunch of disturbing images on the screen yeah and it has no real significance or meaning for them or their work absolutely i mean david lynch is my favorite filmmaker and I think it comes down to a lot of what Tatiana said, which is that it's all housed in emotion. And it's all very sincere. I mean, David Lynch is an Eagle Scout from Missoula, Montana. He is someone who just has a very pure view of the world. He, he pays attention to detail. He's obsessed with images of Philadelphia where he spent time, the smokestacks, the industry, sort of feeling very emotionally affected by the decay and the crime of the city at the time when he and was a there. a lot of important female characters who, through the course of his films, struggle, stumble, and then ultimately rise most of the time. Some of the time. No. okay. <laughs> but a lot of it has to do with dreams and like dreaming for either something better than your situation, kind of dreaming yourself out, or empathy. There's a lot of empathy in mm -hmm. his movies. And I felt a lot of that with Guy Madden as well. Um, even though he was dealing with very... Even the evil often, characters yeah, exactly. like, are totally... Yeah, there's, there's affection towards them. Absolutely. And you... Like, yeah, the evil mother is still... You can see what she's trying to do. You can see her motives. The evil mother in Brand Upon the Brain has her own tragic backstory. She says, from my mom's womb, from my mother's womb, I was untimely ripped, which she's mm -hmm. quoting Lady Macbeth, but it is this, you know, that is her backstory too. And so we sympathize with all of these characters. I mean, we sympathize with Frank Booth in Blue Velvet because he's been through horrible things. He does horrible things, which makes him the villain, but it all comes down to this 
Mm-hmm. You know, everyone has a backstory. Yes. Like they're driven by something in their history. Mm-hmm. It's not just out of the blue. Absolutely. Um, there was another interesting parental relationship in Careful. It was between a daughter and her father. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was sort of actually, as much as we see um, uh, the son, Johan, and the mother, it, it is the relationship between the daughter and Clara. Clara and her father that sort of causes a lot of the disaster that runs through the plots. Um, she wants to be loved so badly. Um, he's a painter, but he doesn't find her inspiring. He paints her sister instead, mm-hmm. and he buys her sister nice hats and outfits, whereas Clara goes and works in a mine um, after her fiance Johan commits suicide. And she has this like secret hideaway, which also like feels very much like daydreaming, um, where she brings her father uh, and later her lover. And like, it's, it's all about wanting love. Um, yeah. So Ksenia, you saw Brand Upon the Brain in a live context? Yes. I love that. So it was amazing. It can was, you explain a bit about how this film was actually originally presented in theaters? Um, I don't think it was every screening, but I, I was very lucky in my early days of living in New York. Um, my friend Elliot invited me to this live production of Brand Upon the Brain, which was basically the most amazing film experience I've ever had. Um, the film was projected. It was at the East Village Cinema, which is an old um, uh, Jewish vaudeville theater. So it's like layered. There are multiple levels, and you're looking down, and there was a live orchestra playing the score, and there were um, Foley artists. So when he's painting the lighthouse, they're like making the squishy, slappy sounds. And when people are running up the stairs, they're like running. And I remember there were cantaloupes involved at one point. Maybe that was the painting. <laughs> Just like different fruits and vegetables and boards and squeaky things. Um, and Isabella Rossellini was... Um, on a balcony to the left and she was narrating it live. Oh my god. Um and it like I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. It's it sounds so magical. It uh. was really incredible. Crispin uh, Glover, I guess, also did some of the live narration at other screenings. I wasn't in that one, but yeah. I mean, but Isabella is the one who wound up on the on the DVD yeah. mm-hmm. narrating the movie. It sounds um, incredible. I think part of me also like associates Isabella Rossellini with you, with with my mom. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, that's you're welcome. So maybe that that's another reason that that movie came to mind when we were talking about doing this episode. I just think like she is such a strong, beautiful, independent woman who, like, says what she thinks and does what she wants. And I I have you linked with her. <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> That whole film, I, I guess I, I hadn't seen it in some years, and I, even visually, it has such a poetic rhythm. Yeah, it's almost like a song or a poem, because it's, you've seen this picture before, but like after getting a little bit more of the story, it means a different thing. It's like a music, that when you walk somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and you hear the music far away, mm-hmm. and you 
don't quite know what it is. You can't tell what instrument is playing, but you're just drawn to come closer and you never get really close enough to hear what is that. I but had it's that so experience appealing. recently with an ice cream truck. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Matt and I kept trying to find it and it was always so Somewhere. close. But you couldn't quite get to it. We never got to it. It sounds like a dream. <laughs> you have to make a movie about the ice cream truck. Okay. I agree. I think it would be a good short. <laughs> With um, the mother driving it. And giving and running ice cream me over. to all the kids running on the street but you. Oh, no. And you're the only one who can't quite get to the ice cream truck. And <laughs> finally, at the end, you do catch up to the window and you realize that there's been holes in your pockets the whole time and your change is <laughs> littered out on the street behind you and so you can't even buy the ice cream that you've tried so hard. And wow. then you realize the ice cream is in your hands. My hands you are have, made out of oh. ice cream. <laughs> I think we're hitting no. really onto something yes, I here. think we just wrote our That's first screenplay. Great. I will narrate it. <laughs> yes. Um, I, we alluded to this a, a little bit earlier that amid the dreamlike images, amid the dark storylines, there's a lot of humor in Guy Madden's work. I laughed out loud many times. What is it about his films that are so funny? They're all described on, I think, Netflix as dark comedies, which is like such a misnomer. I mean, they're literally dark a lot of the time. Sometimes it's hard to see things, <laughs> and they're pretty funny. When that um, youngest son Johan. went to work, no, not Johan. Johan was the oldest son who killed himself. Oh. The youngest one went to work for Count, and the guy is preparing him. He's, you know, you are, mm -hmm. you know, you see how far you. you mm -hmm. This is very important. And then at the end, he said, "Do you have regular bowel movements?" And he said, yes, I do. I'm glad to hear that. And he just move on. Yeah. I just, this is perfect. <laughs> Why would it include in any movie, any dialogue? It's um, perfect. My favorite scene from Careful was um, the countess died. Uh, and Gringos is uh, visiting her coffin, I guess, to say his... Uh, tribute or whatever. But he, it's forbidden. He's not supposed to be in there at all. Oh, I didn't realize that. He I'm sorry. He sneaks in to where the count's the count's mother is entombed in oh, an yes. open casket. And he ha he's holding a candle. It's my favorite and, scene too. And some of the oh, and what's more interesting, the countess is played by um, the, the co-writer of the film <laughs> in drag. The Gringos is holding a candle and some of the wax falls on the face and like she already has this like terrible makeup that's really pasty and pancakey. Like, yeah. yeah and, and like and he and tries that. to like remove the wax <laughs> and it just like slips around and he like accidentally peels off some of the makeup and he like tries to put it back and it's like such a long scene. It's almost like the kind yeah. of scene that you could see in um uh, what's the uh, Naked Gun movies or something? But because of the way it's handled, like it, it's like more elevated than that. It's like a nightmare that you yeah, would just have, yeah. and I can't fix it, and I can't fix it. But he has you. such a straight face; like he is totally yes. focused. There's never any hamminess. Um, yeah. yeah, 
These films could have easily slipped into ham territory. I'm thinking of the the finishing Butler School with the very in, in careful with the very severe teacher with the sort of almost Princess Leia haircut. Yeah. Very you know she looks like a clown. She looks like um, everyone's a makeup in is so drag. severe. Like they're just like mm -hmm. lines on their cheeks. So it's almost like operatic makeup. Or it's like we're watching a stage play, but from on the stage like you know actors have so much makeup on because mm. from far away it looks great but up close you're never supposed to see them yeah you're never supposed to see them that up close and so it comes off as very garish and clown like mm. um but all of that it just it's it exists and i feel like guy Madden doesn't rest on that it's just an extra thing to sort of up the weirdness mm -hmm. and up the comedy that is is sort of this underlying layer mm -hmm. amidst everything else um yeah and the acting is very like kind of stiff and a little bit forced but just always on the brink i i i find it enthralling i read that um especially after careful there was a lot of criticism of the acting but that but that that was very deliberate on that Madden's exactly part. what he wanted them to do. Yeah, he wanted them to act that way. Um, and the guy who played uh, Gringos actually later went to Hollywood and like he was in several Madden movies. But those reels didn't do much for him because it's hard to like, you know, sell your acting with this kind of very mannered. <laughs> but he wound style. up being a writer on South Park. Exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, it makes sense that Madden would employ other comic actors. Um, some people from Kids from the Hall were in other of his movies. And I didn't realize it, but that makes sense, it being makes Canadian. So, it makes so much sense. <laughs> Canadians. Oh, and how beautiful it is. Uh, we didn't mention how gorgeous every scene is. How perfect, as, as a graphic designer, mm -hmm. I just, I'm just drooling when I watch that. It's... I can indulge in it. Sometimes I notice myself when I watch his movies, I don't even listen to the dialogue. I'm so in awe with the composition and the lighting and the partially blurry and mm -hmm. smudged and something. It's just so beautiful. Um, and sometimes I can just watch it. It doesn't matter what's going on. As long as it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is the sort of movie you could just like project in the background of a party and yes. just enjoy the visuals. I would love to go to that party. Next time. <laughs> Are there other films by Guy Madden that you would recommend we see that, you know, you, those of you listening should see after watching Careful and Brand Upon the Brain? The saddest music in the world. Definitely. Saddest music in the world. Okay. Isabella Rossellini with Glass Legs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's all blue. Oh. It's all in blue. And if you rent the DVD, which I owned it after I watched it, I just couldn't stop it. On DVD, there are a few shorts. Hmm. And they're all amazing. One of the shorts is something, it's a beautiful singing of like opera um, singer, um, mezzo soprano. Mm -hmm. And I was. I was watching that short, I'll tell you, probably 20 times in a row. I couldn't stop it. It's like a snow 
blowing and the view through the window and little guy going through the like blizzard uh-huh. and the woman is singing and there is nothing else but it's so beautiful and I was looking for this song for several years because I couldn't find I looked through all the tests, you know credits and everything I couldn't find what is the song uh-huh. and then I found it on the internet a few years later accidentally And is it, it as is, affecting if you just listen to the song, even if you don't have the visuals? Yeah, the song itself is great, but yeah. the visual adds to it, okay. of course. Well, like the benefits of owning a DVD. And then humorous short uh, Stacey's Lap Party. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely hilarious. It's uh, You have to watch it. So that's my recommendation. What's the song? The song is um, is actually originated from a Russian composer, The Nightingale and the Rose. If you look on the YouTube, yes. Okay. It's so gorgeous. We'll link to it. I'm really glad we had this conversation because being exposed to Guy Madden for the first time, not really... I, I don't know. I sometimes like to jump into something without having done a whole lot of research, just maybe a little bit of context. I didn't quite know how to make sense of his films and discovering through talking to you both that it all comes down and but like feeling so much emotion about these movies, realizing that it all comes down to emotion and that he's not cold and that there's a lot of empathy in his work makes them feel so accessible. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, just a, a quick wrap-up, I guess, like, he didn't even start making films until his 30s, which I feel really It's good about. Part. Like, he went to school for economics, I think, and was a house painter for a while and, like, did all these jobs and just didn't find it satisfying but loved film. And so he went to school and was introduced to um, surrealist filmmakers and realized that, like, movies don't have to be perfect and polished. Like, you can make them your own and have them represent pieces of your own life and memories. And, like, yeah, you can use people who aren't actually actors and still have meaning and feeling. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I find him and his work really inspiring. His movies do remind a little bit of Salvador Dali if you saw that absurd mm-hmm. movies. That's, uh, that's the sense. And they don't belong to any specific category. It's not really pure surrealism. It's not horror. There's it's kind not of more comedy. humor it's to it than it's actual surrealism. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I feel like we're going to be talking about him more in the future. There's more work and more to read and see about him absolutely thank you so much tatiana for coming thank on the you show <laughs> thank you for inviting me girls Love um it. and because i'm a good daughter i'm going to plug your website um you are an outstanding hypnotist uh in your work life and your website is hypnosiscreative.com net thank you no that why are you making <laughs> you a face have to do that. um that's maybe that's why i became a hypnotist because i was hypnotized by movies like that i know but it, it but is, you are specifically sorry, i'm sorry but you are specifically interested in working with creative people who maybe 
need additional inspiration or want to feel more motivated in their work, um, that is one of your specialties. So yeah, actually anyone, we actually work with filmmakers sometimes. Um, anyone mm -hmm. in the Maryland or DC area, uh, you also work remotely, but look up hypnosiscreative.com. Thank you. <laughs> Um, you can reach us at bonnieandmaude at gmail.com or on our Facebook and Twitter or Tumblr pages. The username is Bonnie and Maude, of course. Um, we have a phone line. You can call and leave us an anonymous or unanonymous message. It's up to you. We won't ever pick up. Uh, the number is 530-628-3379. Way to remember it, 530 maude 79 for Bonnie and Maude, I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. <laughs>